Sometimes, as I've said, I feel that the uh, social hour, which is only 10 minutes long, um, is as important a part of what we do in coming together as the sitting, and certainly more important than all the words that follow. Um, there's a real um, nourishment and um, support that we give to one another just by knowing one another, or sitting together, or, or meeting other people of, of sangha, or satsang, or whatever you want to call it, that's really a treasure. Um, and in some ways, we probably do well some night just to forget the talk and have an hour, a full hour for social hour. We'll try that soon, maybe. Um, and of course, the sitting together in silence in its own way is very precious, even though it's so simple, really not doing anything complicated or extraordinary in some fashion, that just to take the time out of our lives to come and join together and be silent and listen to our bodies or our hearts or our bellies or whatever happens to be talking this particular evening or our hopes or fears, and to try to do that with some sense of balance is wonderful. And it's as healing as anything that we can do in our lives. And it's certainly something that the earth could use for its healing. So on previous weeks, just going back a, a few weeks, a couple of talks were done on kind of an exploration of spirituality and sexuality, um, not terribly risque, but nevertheless, I think, relevant. And then that led into a talk on forgiveness, as I recall. Um, and then a very lovely talk on surrender. I really liked that one. thought it was good. It's, it's, it's like channeling. It's not like there's some spook or something out there particularly, but, but some nights it, that's what comes through, and some nights something else comes. Um, and then last week, where I felt more like a fool and an idiot than anything else. Um, and that was actually pretty interesting. It's not the first time in my life, mind you, that I felt that way. Uh, and what I'd like to speak about tonight is actually two things. A little bit about idiocy, um, just as I begin to really understand it more. Um, but more significantly about hunger which in my own case is related. Um, it's interesting just to sit up here and be embarrassed or feel like what I'm saying doesn't ring true for me. Not that it doesn't have some okay words, but that there's some quality where it's a little bit false. Um, and that's what it felt like last week. I felt kind of idiotic. And of course, in the Sufi tradition, idiots are considered the wise people, Nasruddin and company and so forth. Um, maybe I should just change traditions or something like that. There's a story of Nasruddin who was acting in many ways as the, as the wise man in this village where he was living. Um, and he lived in a reasonably sane way. And anyone who asked him, now, how did you learn to live this way? Or what, what is it that brings you to, the, to this kind of way of living? He said, I know what is in the Quran. And so he went on, and other people would ask, why is he the wise man in the village? And 
everyone would say, well, he knows what's in the Koran, and that got passed around. And finally, there was a real idiot in the village, even more idiotic than Nasruddin. And they were sitting around one day in the coffee shop, and the, the true idiot came in, and someone asked Nasruddin why he was acting so wisely, and he said, I know what's in the Koran. And the true idiot said, what is in the Koran? And Nasruddin said, a bouquet of pressed flowers and a letter from my <laughs> beloved friend Rumi. <laughs> he gave away his secret. What I found last Monday, and I wasn't so aware of it, I've told you, the people who come on a regular basis, that Monday's an interesting day because I go to see this man that I work with in Reiki and breath therapy on Mondays in the afternoon, so I come out of there sometimes rearranged a little bit. And what happened last week, I discovered afterward in reflecting that evening, was that I wanted to talk in some way about abundance and, and love and kind of graciousness of life um, because I felt it a little bit at the end of the therapy session and so I started to write this lovely talk. But most of the therapy session actually was around hunger and deprivation and feelings of not being complete in some way. Um, and so tonight I want to talk a little bit about hunger and not so much about abundance, um, but more about the illusion of incompleteness. And what I discovered felt idiotic um, was the fact that I had this idea that I was going to talk about love or abundance or something like that, which at the time I wrote it down three hours before felt just right. And as I sat here and talked about it, I didn't feel that at all. I felt depressed, um, needy, idiotic, uh, hungry, um, uh, judgmental, and uh, sad. And so it didn't somehow ring true, <laughs> as I said it, you know what I mean. Now, I have a name for a part of myself. I introduced my wife to him some, some time ago, and that's actually helped in our relationship a little bit. There's one aspect of myself uh, who is named, I've named him Ethy, and he's not named after Ethan Allen or something like that. He's actually named after the Ethiopians. Um, and it's just a part of my own experience that arises, which is the closest thing to those malnourished children or the pictures that one sees on TV of starving people. Even living in this, this realm, Marin County supermarket abundance, that there's that place inside still that I see that picture and there it is. Not from the picture, but it's been there a long, long time. And when Ethy's around, he comes around regularly, um, if I'm identified with him, if I am, uh, I really feel him, as I did to a great extent last week, he's here a little bit today, but not as much, um, it's as if that's the only reality. The only reality is hunger. And there's, a, there's an enormous amount of addiction and all kinds of other things in our culture, all the ways that we somehow try to respond to this or to cover up or to fill it up with food, with television, with, with uh, friends, with, with something to fill those places that are hungry in us. 
because it hurts a lot and it seems like our natural response should be well let's let's eat but usually it doesn't really get in there and tickle the place that it hurts that it itches and yet our whole culture in some way is about trying to fill it all the advertising and all the kind of popular cultural myths of abundance fulfilling that place if you get enough if you have enough the right house relationship car perfume I mean not just the trivial things but even the significant ones the right relationship or something then that's going to do it and finally you'll feel filled you it's like you finally had your Chinese banquet and they just keep bringing it out until you're full it's kind of confused though really isn't it when we look at it or try to feel it there are a lot of kinds of hunger there's the hunger for food there's hunger of the heart for contact or for touch or for appreciation or communion just that someone else acknowledge us or recognize us the hunger that's more akin to loneliness the hunger from different kinds of loss that we have that we want to feel because something that we had has disappeared kind of biological hunger for women but men as well especially having children or having families it's another kind of hunger and boy when the heart is hungry or the body or the the womb or something is hungry it's very painful it's very hard I remember being in this state at another time I was having a really hard time and I had an interview just a very short one with Karmapa one of the great Tibetan masters and teachers and I went and I paid my respects to him talked for just a few minutes and then I looked in his eyes and what I remember of that interview was just feeling like it's so painful can't you help me and and what I got back from him was kind of a quizzical look like <laughs> haven't you figured it out yet or something like that it, I mean, it wasn't unkind or anything but it was in a circumstance where I was leading this big retreat but I was still having a hard time and he was there and it was just like uh, I don't know what his actual ex experience was but I, the sense that I got was um, are you still <laughs> kind of caught up in that uh, and it was it was a really amazing moment but I was and he, he didn't help at all you know and it, <laughs> and it lasted a pretty long time in Sanskrit or Pali the word is called Trishna which means thirst desire wanting and its exaggeration or the realm that that man that it manifests in in the greatest way is called the realm of the hungry ghosts hungry ghosts are pictured in the various realms of existence that one can take birth in in some fashion or other as these beings who have huge stomachs and big bodies and tiny little mouths so that it's never possible to get enough in there to ease that hunger we all know that 
experience in our lives. And I mean, the realms are not just some mythical or archetypal realm. They exist in our personal lives. They exist also in places on the planet. They, you could say they exist in Ethiopia. Um, in some way, Las Vegas is a kind of hungry ghost realm for anybody who's been there. There's a, an insatiable quality to the activity that's there. If you want to learn about hungry ghosts, it's a, it's a short trip to Nevada. And this quality of hunger, of waiting, you know, the story I've used in retreats of Nasruddin, who buys the bushel of hot chili peppers because um, they're so cheap. And he sits in his kitchen, and what to do? So he starts to eat them, and eating them, and it's painful, and tears are running down his cheeks. Why are you doing this, Mullah? I keep waiting for a sweet one. I keep waiting for that one that's gonna, that, that'll do it. In Buddhist teachings, the whole cycling of birth and death and the realms of being caught in what's called samsara. Samsara is neurotic wanderings, is looking for fulfillment over and over through the heaven realms, in the hell realms, in the animal realms, in the human realm, more and more trying to get something that we, that we desperately seek and don't have. At the center of that wheel of cycling is this quality of Trishna, of thirst. And it's thirst to have, to incorporate, to get, to own, to possess. It's thirst to do. It's the thirst of having, of doing, and even in its very deepest level of being, of somehow being separate. And so it's that desire to be, to be something, to be I, to be me, that propels us through our days and maybe through our lives, life after life. And as one gets more silent in deeper places in our hearts, in our spiritual practice, you come to touch this kind of hunger. Hunger in the body, hunger in the heart, and the feelings, in the womb, and all these places. At the very most silent place in meditation, you can sense not just the hunger to have or get fulfilled. Those drop away after a while. You're sitting and you're relatively comfortable and you don't want a pizza so much anymore. You don't want a, um, a good sexual experience or something. That, that drops away a little bit. You know, and then the, the hunger for contact with other people maybe drops away. Desire for, for those kind of sense things disappears. But in the very center, when you come to it, you find this very deep desire just to keep being, to grow, to exist somehow, which the Buddha called the grasping of these processes of life. The, the name for a person in Buddhist language is the five grasp processes. It's amazing. And you find that it's almost cellular, that that attachment, you know it when your car almost swerves off the road and you can feel every cell in your body, or very often it will, We'll just we'll kind of contract and say, huh, I'm not going to give this one up quite yet. <laughs> very, very profound, very deep level of holding, of attachment. So that's the force that we're talking about. It's like the force that holds the nucleus of an atom together. Now the question that comes out of this is, how do we relate to this hunger in our lives? What do we do with it? 
and you can sit here and feel idiotic as I do sometimes. That's one way to relate to it. Have we ever even let ourselves look at it and look at what kinds of hunger there is? Is the heart hunger or is it loneliness hunger or is it hunger for family or spiritual hunger? Just to really study it a little bit, to examine it. There's hunger through the eyes, hunger through the ears, through the nose, through the tongue, through the mind. Hunger for ideas, hunger for opinions, views, all kinds. It's amazing that we can relate to all of the senses with that quality. And to the extent that we do, to that extent is there suffering. But what do we do with it when it comes? Do we ever really look at it, at that pain or those places of pain? And what happened to me in therapy is I immediately got very sleepy. It was interesting. I haven't been sleepy for a while, but I got, it was where he'd say, pay attention to that. And I'd say, I'm so sleepy. I just want to curl up in the corner and go to sleep. The, the level of resistance was about as big as the level of the pain. In this particular case, it relates to being a twin and having been born on a marine base during the war when my father was away and my mother was really in, um, in a relatively abandoned environment and so forth and um, and then getting jaundice and getting thrown back in the hospital and stuff and all these infantile memories come back of wanting something that it, you know mommy or milk or something that just wasn't there at least the way I wanted it very very painful but I mean that's that's just personal history really the force that we're talking about is much more universal than that and even if I got good you know whatever it was for that period there'd be some other hunger that came Anybody here hasn't experienced that? Raise your hand, please. So it's really more universal. So what do we do with this pain? And its desire to possess and incorporate and grasp and grab and have more of and fulfill ourselves. The pain of our separateness in some way. There's a Zen koan which talks about a cow it says there was a cow, and one day it started to eat. And first it ate all the grass in the meadow, and then it was still hungry, so it ate the fence, and then it ate the barn, and then it ate the whole farmhouse and the farmer and all the people in it. And it went on, and it ate the whole county, and finally it ate the whole country, and then it ate the whole world. And we are in the cow's belly. How do we get out? You'll be quizzed next week on the answer. <laughs> Ajahn Chah puts it this way, something I've read before, but it's so essential to his way of teaching. He says, when you take a good look at it, this world of ours is just that much. It exists just as it is, ruled by birth, aging, impermanence, death. It's only so much. Great or little, it's only so much. The wheel of life and death is only this much. Whatever is pleasurable, delicious, exciting, good, or painful, or difficult, or fearful, is only that much. It has its limit. It's not anything outstanding, really. The Buddha taught that everything is just that much. We should really pay attention to this point. Look at the elements of our body and mind. They're conditioned phenomena. They arise for a while. They're temporary, according to certain causes. Their nature is always the same. It can't be changed. A great nobleman, a common servant are the same. 
When they become old, their act comes to an end. They can no longer put on airs or hide behind masks. There's nowhere to go, no more taste, no more texture. When you get old, your sight becomes dim. Your hearing weakens. Your body becomes feeble. You must face yourself. But we human beings are constantly in combat, at war, to escape the fact of being just that much. But instead of escaping, we just continue to create more suffering, waging war with good, waging war with evil, waging war with what is small, waging war with what is big, waging war with what is too short or too long or right or wrong, courageously carrying on the battle. The struggle seems endless. We must use our practice to discover the heart of this process, to see how we are stuck, and to come to a place of peace. How do we relate to that inner child in ourselves? How do we relate to this thirst, to this hunger, to all of this realm of desire? Does it just unconsciously propel us through our lives? And it does a lot, I mean, for many of us. And I don't mean to say it in a judgmental way. It's really a kind of inquiry. If you want to learn about the spiritual life, look at the nature of thirst or hunger or desire. Do we beat it? Do we say it's horrible? Are we frightened of it? Do we judge it? I dislike it quite a bit myself. I really do. It's one of the things that I find least acceptable in myself. There are a few others as well, but that's one of them. But what do you do with it? You know, do, How do we treat the starving Ethiopian or the starving child in there? Do we condemn it or judge it? You know, Or do we overstuff it? Okay, here, kid. You know. <laughs> they, they can't even take food in their stomach right away, actually, if, if you've ever been in that kind of circumstance. It takes a whole, a whole range of nourishment, nourishment of touch, nourishment of liquids, of very simple things first, before any food can even be received and be digestible. If you just stuff it in, it just comes out the other end. What is the Ethiopia in ourselves? or the Nicaragua, or the Cambodia? How do we create that inner war, or that inner starvation? And what do we do with that? Do we protect it? Do we feed it? Do we nourish it? Do we fear it? Have we ever even really looked at it, just to see it? This is the first noble truth of the Buddha in his teaching. It's the truth of suffering, of sorrow, of dukkha. And the question is, how do we relate to it? Can we learn to relate wisely with wisdom, with understanding, with compassion? Do we know how to nourish? Do we know how to receive? Is there some sense of gratitude for the abundance that's actually amazing in our lives, even in the worst life in this room? the level of abundance, of seeing, of hearing, of what's been given to us, just that we've been given a body, that we hear the Dharma, all kinds of things, amazing abundance. The first noble truth, that the world of all the cycling existence of all these realms, none of them is basically satisfactory. If we look for them to fulfill us in some way, it never happens. That's a pretty amazing thing to look at. 
don't have to believe it, but, but look at it, examine it. And there's certainly enough suffering around on the earth, which we've talked about in other evenings. The suffering of wars in 125 countries, or 115 countries, I forget what the number is, since World War II, and there are only 145 countries on the earth. Countries, I mean, we are included. We've been in the Korean War, and the Vietnam War, and Central America now, other ones. And the suffering of hunger in some countries, literally of starvation, and grain elevators fill someplace else. Something is really awry in that. But also the suffering in our own lives, the suffering of loss, the suffering of divorce. I think more than half the kids who go to school in Marin County are from single family or step-parent. It's become the rule rather than the exception. And it's never fun. I mean, if you talk with them, it's never good. Not to say that it may not need to happen sometimes, but it's a lot of suffering. The suffering of addiction. 20 million alcoholics and 10 million drug addicts in our population. And all the millions of people who are affected because they were living in that family or closely associated or working with that. Or of things like AIDS, where the people that you love and are close to get sick and there's not a cure. There's nothing to do on the level of healing the physical body. So what do we do with this hunger and desire and pain and suffering? How do we touch our bellies or our hearts or our bodies or our minds when they're hungry? Be gentle with the amount of pain that was entrusted to you, like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart. Each one of us is a part of her heart, and therefore each of us is endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are sharing in the totality of that pain and called upon to meet it in joy instead of self-pity. This is also from the Sufi tradition. How do we touch that places in ourselves? Because the healing of it isn't going to come by more eating. We eat plenty. There's some other way that this suffering, this thirst, gets healed. It gets healed with a kind of tenderness and an acceptance and an awareness that touches it without fighting or resisting or indulging that really is there for it the way that a baby wants to be touched. It was interesting teaching the other week with Ajahn Sumedho that I talked about so much last week because at one point he said he'd felt quite fulfilled in his life and if it turned out that he was to die tomorrow that would be okay with him which is a very wonderful way to live day by day. Well, a, a good friend of mine who's a, a, a practitioner of the path of shamanism and the kind of warrior path 
has recently gotten involved in hang gliding, which I used to do, and um, parachute jumping, which I've always wanted to do. So he told me about it. I said, I want to go, too. I, I have not done that. And I, I actually, I like those kind of things. It's not so scary. I like roller coasters. There's some sense of just letting go that I really enjoy about it. So it's not like torture or anything. It actually looked look like fun. So he said, fine, we'll do it in the spring when the clouds clear and stuff. And then I started to think about it. And I said, well, all right, if you go do this, um, are you ready? <laughs> Are you ready in case the parachute doesn't open? You know, is, is this it? Um, do things feel complete? And I felt pretty complete, actually, and felt complete in terms of certain amount of work I've done in my life that's been tremendously fulfilling and reasonably complete with most of my relationships. And all of a sudden, this big red flag went up, and it said, kid said, two and a half years, you're going to desert this <laughs> poor baby. She's only two and a half years old. And, and Ethy arose and said, no, no, he didn't like that idea either. I mean, because it, it sort of resonates, you know, one baby to another. <laughs> and I saw really clearly how attached I am to her. I mean, if I die, I die. And I, um, I don't know, maybe I'll be terrified at the moment, but it seems like I all right, I can handle it, I guess. I'll have to, we all do. But it seemed really unfair that there was some big piece of unfinished business that parents have with children and that I feel directly. And so I listened to Ajahn Sumedho say that, and I shook my head and I said, I can't say that. You know, maybe I could say it in five years or ten years or something when I feel like I've done my duty. And it's not just that it's my duty, but it's really from my heart what, I, what it feels right to do. So that is, what do I do with that fact of that attachment? And then we each have, or we'll find, not only our hunger, but our attachments, if we look in there. How do we relate to that? Say, no, it's no good, and cut it out, and I'll just let go anyway, or something. How do we touch those places of holding in ourselves? If we can learn to relate to these things which are so deep and at times so painful and so powerful, if we can learn to relate to them with some compassion and some understanding, every other part of practice will be a piece of cake. This is really getting down to the, to the center of it. That's what nirvana is about. Nirvana is the end of cyclic existence, in one sense, which is to say the end of grasping and going round in circles, looking for something that you are but haven't yet touched in some way. The end of that illusion that we're incomplete. But somehow we take it all very personally that, as Ajahn Sumedho said the other week, that that somebody's death is really a failure, that death isn't supposed to happen, or that illness is not supposed to happen, that that's really a failure. We haven't done it right in our lives. Or that hunger is somehow a bad thing, that we should be more fulfilled than that. Or our greed or our judgment or something that we see is wrong. And so somehow our mind takes it and makes something that we have to fix that's wrong, that's incomplete, out of it all. Remember that 
thing from Suzuki Roshi. I've read it so many times, but to me it's the, in some ways the most compelling passage in all of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, when he's dying of cancer and he calls everybody together, his students, and he says, if when I'm dying, if I suffer, that's all right, you know. That's just suffering, Buddha. No question in it. Maybe there'll be some physical agony or spiritual agony for you and for all of us, but that's all right. We should be grateful to have a limited body like mine or like yours. If you had a limitless life, it would be a real problem for you. What an amazing thing to say. If when I die, if I suffer, that's all right, you know. That's just suffering, Buddha. What a, what a heart to say that's okay, that pain is okay, that hunger is okay, that death is okay, that life is okay, that pleasure is okay. How do we touch it? I remember someone going to Manindraji in India, an Indian meditation teacher and friend, who was having a really difficult time in their practice and suffering quite a great deal, and he sort of described it, and Manindraji talked about being mindful of it. And then he went away and he said, well, it's still, it's well, really a lot of suffering, and um, came back the next morning, and Manindraji said, well, how is your suffering? I hope you are enjoying it. And it was amazing. I mean, what a different relationship to it than that it's so terrible. Because the nature of the heart, as I said last time, is that it has a capacity to touch anything and to bear anything, even if it falls asleep some, some sessions. It, it really can do that, that the heart is greater than all of the suffering in the world. And the nature of the mind is like clear space. The wisdom of the mind can contain the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows and birth and death of beautiful things and terrible things and tragedies and wars and 10 million species of plants and animals that have been created out of nothing and contain all of that and have room for it. And there is some other place we may not be in it, and we're not even supposed to be in it all the time. That would be another problem for us. But there's some other place that we know as well as we know our hunger. It says, oh, how, this is an amazing trip, isn't it? Now I think I'm a, a human being in this body, and I'm hungry, and, and um, it sure goes fast, doesn't it? A place that can see this whole of life with the eyes of Suzuki Roshi, the eyes of a Buddha, the eyes of compassion. It says, suffering Buddha, happy Buddha, sad Buddha, moon Buddha, sun Buddha. The third Zen patriarch puts it so beautifully. He says, the non-dual, the realm of wholeness, of completeness, the end of hunger, to come to that place is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. An amazing line. To be without anxiety about the fact that things are not perfect and they never have been and they never will be. And you know the lines that T.S. Eliot uses to end the, the four quartets where he starts and, 
that last part, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And he goes on, through the unknown remembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning at the source of the longest river. Not known because not looked for, but half heard in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick now, here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. Amazing mind, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. When the tongues of flame are enfolded, into the crown knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. And that line, all shall be well and all manner of thing shall be well, comes from Julian of Norwich, a, a wonderful medieval saint. And it was an expression in her journals, in her, in her realization after her own long dark night of sensing that there was some inherent beauty or perfection that could be touched that was greater than all of the sorrow in life. It's a very odd thing to be a human being, to have a physical body and to sense ourselves as separate and go through the motions of our days of of feeding it and taking it around and walking it and bathrooming it and things like that and trying to find some meaning out of it all because there's so many levels our physical experience our emotional experience and then all those other places it's kind of mysterious And what our practice is about, in a really simple way, is to sit and allow whatever level decides to show itself, the hungry ghosts or the heaven realms or the hell realms or the animal realms, and to see if we can touch that too with the heart of compassion. And to see if we can get a little bit of perspective and say, hmm, that's a pretty interesting one. Look at that, that one too. The wisdom that doesn't take it all quite so personally. The three characteristics of Buddhism that the Buddha taught as sort of the center of his teachings are impermanence, anicca, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, or selflessness, that we can't possess anything, that we don't own it, we just kind of pass through it. Which someone put in a more colloquial way, life's tough, it'll put you through changes, and don't take it personally. <laughs> End of sermon. <laughs> Let's take a little bit of time, if you would like, for comments or discussion or questions or anything. Please. I
Ajahn Ananda was talking about being a celibate monk and, you know, barefoot celibate monk and doing one meal a day, and that he needed to do it. That's the way he needed to do his practice. And he needed to, I think he used the words, restrain himself. Uh-huh. And he said, I don't know how you guys, do, I don't know how you guys can do it this way, meaning being... In the complicated world, uh-huh. And I guess what I'd like you to comment on is the sense of, you know, we notice our hunger, and at what point do we restrain ourselves? Uh, so the question, do people in the back hear it? The question is about restraint. One of the two teachers a couple of weekends ago, Ajahn Anando, was saying that he needed to be a monk because he was, he was so caught up in his desires as a lay person. He's been a monk for 15 years now, but he found himself so undisciplined that he voluntarily chose a system, a way of living that's very simple, barefoot, one meal a day in his bowl, and so forth, um, as a way to bring him to a sense of ease or completion because the other was so difficult. And he looked out and he said, I don't know how you do this path, those of you out here, because it's so hard when you have all these temptations and all the complexities. And so your question really is about what is the role of voluntary restraint or restraint at all? Um, and it has a very important place in spiritual practice, uh, a very important one. There are two extremes, really. One is suppression, which doesn't lead very far, as you probably noticed, because it comes out later someplace else. It's attached to us. And the opposite is indulgence, in which you act on all the things that come through, neither of which fulfill that hunger. Right? How many people have tried it with food or sex or drugs or something, and really done it a lot? And what you find is that it... Right, it reinforces itself. So part of the teachings of restraint, um, and it's called sense restraint in the Buddhist tradition, is to recognize the particular places of our lives where we get caught by that power, by that force. It's a little bit like AA. It's not really very different. And to say, I'm going to voluntarily choose a support system. This is MA here, right? Meditators Anonymous. I'm going to voluntarily choose this support system and choose to follow some rules or precepts as best as I'm able to, to be abstinent and not to drink or to not indulge in certain ways, even though the desire is still going to arise. Um, we are recovering meditators or something like that, or recovering whatever it happens to be. The desire will still arise. And there comes, if you do it, at some point, this wonderful realization that the freedom is not in acting out the desire. That, in fact, is a there's a tremendous sense of um, bondage in the desire itself. And this one, I talked about studying desire. What does it feel like to, to be in that state of desire? Have you ever really just looked at it? Because it, it motivates our life, and it leads us by the nose or by whatever it is to so many actions. And it's advertised, this is what you should do. In the eating meditation, which most of you have had instruction in, you sit and you look at a plate of food and you begin just to pay attention and you're hungry. Where's the hunger? Is it the tongue that's hungry? Or the eyes? Or the belly? 
or the heart, really? Where's the hunger in you, or the mind? Or are you finishing eating, and it's the end of the meal? Which of those voices do we listen to? The belly says, ah, very full, nice, comfortable. And the tongue says, yeah, but there's a little more of that really good stuff over there on the side of the plate. And the eyes say, yeah, and there's not only that, there's some more over there somewhere. And then the, the, the mind says, um, you know, um, maybe we shouldn't overeat. And then another voice says, yeah, but you should finish everything on your plate. And you say, thanks, Mom, or whoever that one is. And there are five or six different voices that are there, or five or six ways that you experience hunger just for that plate of food. How many of us have really let ourselves just look at it, to touch it, to experience it, to begin to explore it? And when you do, you find that it's painful. Not that it's bad or good, nothing wrong with it, it just, it's a state of tension, it hurts. You still may decide to try and fulfill it. Actually, the fulfillment isn't so much that you get the thing. That's not really what's so groovy about fulfilling hunger. You know what's so pleasant about it? Anybody notice? That it stops for a moment. It's actually the ease of the easing of the hunger that's so pleasant. Not so much the taste, but, ah, now I'm not, not hungry. Which gives you a sense of how powerful that that grasping and the pain of it is. And what you find, what I found in being a monk, really interesting, following all these rules and having a hard time with them at first and so forth, is that I felt freer after some months and after I got used to it than almost any other time in my life. I got my bowl of food, I ate it. Um, I couldn't go out to a movie or go and look for a date or whatever kinds of things I wanted to do but I felt so free inside. I didn't owe anybody anything. There was nothing I was looking for. I could just walk if I felt like it, or sit, or read. And there was this, it was like, it was an exhilaration, like jumping out of an airplane might be, I'll find out, you know? <laughs> there was this tremendous sense of freedom having 227 vows that I took. And so freedom is not that ability to follow desire to drink the kind of beer you want or buy the kind of car or some that sort of gross American misconception of freedom, but really the freedom from our uh, attachment to or our being caught by or identification with this very process. Please. Why not think about all the things that are right? And that's one of the great things that you can learn in sitting. This, the question being about um, the, the limitations of a monk. You realize you can't fulfill it, you let it go. Whereas here, you think, well, gee, if I get 10 more of them or 
20 more or something more of it, then it'll, then it'll ease that place for good. And one of the great things in a, such a simple way that one can learn from sitting, when I sit at home and I don't have a prescribed period of time that I have to get up and do something, I usually sit and the inner way that I work with ending the sitting is I don't get up until I want to get up three times. I've talked about this sometime before here. So the first time comes and I'm hungry or I have to go to the bathroom or there's something important that I thought of that I have to do or whatever, or, or I'm restless or my knees hurt or whatever is going on. And I note desire to get up and I just become aware of that and the restlessness or the, the, the compelling thing that's drawing me. And I just sit with it and I feel it and I let it pass. And then what happens almost invariably, not every time, but usually is in meditation it's like, ah, oh, drops to some deeper place. Even if it's only for a couple minutes, it's like, oh, how wonderful that that desire arose and I didn't grab the hook and go, go on the journey. And then I sit and the second time it comes and says, really, you know, it's, it's getting time. You've got to answer these calls and there's business to do and, uh, and all these, you know, those voices. I say, desiring to get up, really wanting to get up, desiring, desiring, I feel it. And of course, if you look at it like anything for a while, then it passes. And then again, there's this, ah, oh, here I am. And there's a sense of contentment or just being where I am that's sweeter than any other part of the sitting usually that will come by that point. And then of course, sometimes only 30 seconds later or maybe five minutes later or 10 minutes or whenever it is, the third time comes. I really, now it's time, you gotta get, okay, I'll get up and I get up. And that's a very simple thing, but it's very, it's also very powerful just to practice not doing. Not because fulfilling desires is wrong, fulfill as many as you like, but that there's some other place that is asking, that's yearning to be fulfilled, that desires don't touch. And you learn that in, in the simple act of sitting. So I appreciate that question. It's really a good one. Please. The edge of. Uh huh. It was like it wanted out, but there was no place to go. Mm. And uh, as I said, I tried to uh, just feel it, and the more I felt it, the more uncomfortable I was. And my back started hurting, and my neck started hurting, and I thought I, I mean, I started having an anxiety attack. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to get up and get the hell out of here. Right. Mm -hmm. Then I started feeling all this energy coming in from, from everyone else around me. And then I thought, I'm upsetting other people now, you know. I mean, I had all this power going for me. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm upsetting her because I'm sure she's feeling my energy, this mm -hmm. negativity around me. Terrible stuff. Go ahead. <laughs> and, and I just wondered, what... Well, what'd you do then? No guarantees in this meditation stuff. If you're looking for fun, I can give you a few other places to go before, before this. <laughs> I mean, I've been to the ashram and I've been to the meditation and I've been to the 
Wh- which ashram have you been up to? Up in uh, Los Angeles. Uh-huh. And uh, I've never had that experience. When you sit, after a while, you get every experience. I- I'm quite serious about it. That sooner or later, everything will come. And in part, as you let yourself open and you get a little bit more stable, it's as if something inside knows, all right, now we can bring out the, the, the tough stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and restlessness will come. Uh, and at first, you just feel restless and fidgety. If you move and you give into it a lot, often it gets worse. It's like you're trying to patch it up and fix it everywhere, and it just gets worse. So if you sit still, sometimes just accepting it and kind of restless and feeling it, it will move through you. And in fact, um, there's all kinds of physical stuff that happens. Your body may shake or quiver or feel fiery or hot. And there's this, when I talked about that s- level of cellular holding or attachment, that stuff starts to open up as you sit. But when it gets really bad and you just can't stand it, you're so restless. Then, for people who've had the, the regular instruction, they've heard this, the way to work with extreme restlessness is to die. You just say, okay, take me. I'll be the first yogi to die in Marin County of restlessness, right? (laughs) And you just sit there and say, do it. And the moment you do that, some very interesting thing happens. This is like relating to hunger. It's the same thing. The moment you do that, all of a sudden, all of that energy of resistance, which actually made it so terrible, drops away and it can move. And it turns out that, it, as far as I've seen, it hasn't killed anybody yet. It kills you when you act on it, if that's where, you get, where, you, where it gets you. But it's a, it's a very good question. And part of what practice, like I talked about sitting and letting go three times in a row, part of the power of this very simple thing of sitting and being with the breath and then attending to whatever else arises is that you learn this power of not being so identified or caught by things that get increasingly deeper until finally it's the whole sense of possession itself that shows its, shows its nature to us. And that's wonderful, actually. So you had a very good sitting. It was just a drag, but it was really good, and it's valuable. Hmm. This week in your practice, we're just about at 9 o'clock, so... This week in your practice, and I hope that people do some kind of a regular daily practice, even if it's short, because to come and have sense of community and sit together is wonderful. But it, it's not so alive unless we put our bodies and our ass on the line, in a way, um, and take the time to just be still and feel and face and open to and receive and observe with our eye of wisdom and our heart what's actually there in us each day or as often as we can. This week, pay attention to hunger. See what kind, the hunger for for sight, for tastes, for love, heart, belly. And if it feels that in that hunger that there's there's pain and there's a sense of um, deprivation or or, um, uh, uh, emptiness that's unpleasant, if you can, stay with it, pay attention to it, feel how big it is. Feel its texture, its quality, soften, open. And if you let that space of hunger be, it will turn into something else. I won't tell you what it turns into. and It partly depends which flavor of hunger it is, what it will turn into. But if you can let yourself sit, and as you did with the restlessness, or with some other things that are mentioned, 
Really let yourself feel it physically and emotionally or whatever way it manifests and open and experience it and let that space actually get bigger, that hole, that emptiness, the deficient quality in it. Something new will come. Just let yourself see, experiment with it. Truth is perfect and complete in itself, says Dogen. It's not something newly discovered, it has always existed. The truth is not far away, it is nearer than the near. There is no need to grasp after it or attain it, since not one of your steps leads away from it. Don't follow the advice of others, rather learn to listen to the voice within yourself. Your body and mind will become clear and open, and you will realize the unity of all things. Even the slightest movement of your desire will prevent you from entering this palace of wisdom. When you've thrown away all your conceptions, the truth will appear in that moment in its fullness. In your meditations, you yourself are the mirror reflecting the solutions to your problems. The human mind and heart has absolute freedom within its nature. You can understand and attain this freedom intuitively. You don't work towards it, but allow the practice itself to be an expression of this freedom. When you wish to rest, move your body slowly. Stand up quietly. Practice in the morning or in the evening. You will soon realize that mental burdens or attachments can drop away. There have been thousands upon thousands of students who practice meditation and attained its fruits. Don't doubt its possibilities because of the simplicity of the method. If you can't find the truth right where you are, where else do you think you will find it? Life is short and no one knows what the next moment will bring. Open your heart and mind while you have the opportunity. You will soon discover a treasure of wisdom which in turn you can share abundantly with all those around you. This is written 12 or 15 centuries ago. Seems pretty relevant today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.